welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode, which is happening in October 2018. It's a very busy time for conference speaking. I'm just about to embark on a number of speaking events uh, with a number of organizations, so in real estate, in retail, with school administrators. I'm also doing some consulting and strategic planning at this time of the year because people are thinking about 2019 and digging deep and looking at what's coming up in the future. And I want to talk today about how you get things done. And perhaps expanding where you look for resources to get things done. So rather than only looking at what's available in your team and your existing networks, how can you reach out and ask the world for help? In March 2015, Tom Goodwin, who is a Senior Vice President of Strategy and Innovation at Havas Media, wrote an article for the online magazine TechCrunch. And the first paragraph of that article really got people talking. And it was widely quoted in boardrooms, conference rooms, and meeting rooms. And you may have even seen the words that he wrote or some version of it on a conference presentation slide or in a meeting room at your workplace or maybe even shared by somebody on Facebook because his article started like this. Uber, the world's largest taxi company, owns no vehicles. Facebook, the world's most popular media owner, creates no content. Alibaba, the most valuable retailer, has no inventory. And Airbnb, the world's largest accommodation provider, owns no real estate. Something interesting is happening. So Goodwin then goes on to explain the importance of owning the interface between customers and providers, and that was a main thrust of his article. In other words, rather than providing a product or service yourself, you can be incredibly valuable by connecting customers to providers. Now, that's true, but it's not very useful for most organizations. Most businesses don't have any desire to transform into an interface or a platform, as it's sometimes called. But there's another really interesting lesson that all organizations can learn from those examples of Uber and Facebook and other Alibaba and Airbnb. And it's a mindset around trust and reputation. There was a time not so long ago when it would have been crazy, outrageous to let a stranger drive you to the airport or give another stranger access to your spare bedroom or buy high ticket products from other strangers. And yet these are all commonplace now. Somewhere along the line, we shifted our mindset around trust. In the past, we relied on a small number of strong, trusted relationships, and now we put our trust selectively in a larger number of loose relationships. And that shift has profound implications for the way your organization works as well. See, some of the resources you need are already inside your organization, but many of them aren't. And every organization in the past and even now needs to look beyond its four walls for some of the resources that it needs. But the way that you do this has changed. In the past, when you had to go outside for resources, you turned to a few trusted partners. You carefully vetted them first and then invested some time building solid, reliable relationships with them. And that could have taken some time. And now, there's nothing wrong with strong relationships with trusted partners. In fact, they offer a lot of benefits and they're clearly better than weak relationships with untrusted strangers. But those are not the only two options available to you now. Disruptive organizations find resources in many other ways now, and sometimes in ways that seem contrary to trust and reliability, but they're not. It's just that the way we think about trust and reliability has changed. So here are five key differences between established and disruptive organizations when it comes to finding resources. First, own versus share. So the old model was to own as many resources as possible. In fact, these are the things that appear on your balance sheet as assets. 
But in the new model, you share things rather than owning them because that keeps you nimble and flexible. The next one is suppliers versus freelancers. So instead of dealing only with a few preferred suppliers, disruptive organizations often use freelancers. This is what's known as a gig economy or the sharing economy, and you use them for specific skills in narrower areas of expertise. The next one is related to that is specialists versus the crowd. So established organizations value specialists who have earned their stripes in traditional ways, such as education and reputation. Disruptive organizations know that they can find the right expertise everywhere and they reach out far and wide for it. The next one is partners versus community. So when you're looking at creating even stronger relationships than you've already got in your network, established organizations find partners they can work closely with. Disruptive organizations do value partnerships but are also willing to sacrifice the closeness of that relationship to get the diversity of a wider community. And the last one is local versus global, and this is both literal and metaphorical. When established businesses want to create new relationships, their go-to approach, the first thing they do, is they reach out to their inner circles. Disruptive organizations recognize that the best new relationships might be at the edges of their existing networks, not just in their inner circles. So in a social, mobile, and highly connected world, the best people to solve your problems could turn up in the most unexpected places. And it's not good enough to only turn to the few kinds of people you've always turned to. There's a whole world out there that's willing to help. So reach out to them and you tap into endless talent, skills, and expertise. So let's look at each of these five areas. Quickly an overview again. First, the end of ownership, where you're sharing resources rather than owning them outright. Next, outsourcing, which is using freelancers instead of only your preferred suppliers. Then crowdsourcing, which is asking the world to solve your problems. Then community, which is fostering a community that you lead. And then what we call weak ties, so reaching out to the edges, not just the center of your network. Let's get started. So the first one is the end of ownership. In a nutshell, what's mine is ours. Ownership is expensive, it's inefficient, and it's risky, so share things instead. Let me tell you a story. In June 1999, at the turn of the century, Sean Fanning and Sean Packer founded the peer-to-peer file-sharing service Napster, and that rapidly grew to a platform of 80 million users who were sharing music with each other. And now Napster had its problems, and after a series of legal challenges, it eventually closed down in July 2001. But what it did was it opened the eyes of the world to the idea of shared consumer services. And Napster, even though it's no longer around, paved the way for other music sharing services. And the most popular now is Spotify, with more than 70 million paying subscribers. And even Apple Music, with the power of pre-installed software on Apple devices, comes a distant second with only 40 million. And there are other players in the game, but they're even further behind. And unlike Napster which facilitated file sharing without the permission of the artists, Spotify secures deals with major record labels and independent artists and pays them royalties. In fact, 70% of Spotify's revenues go back to the music community as royalties. So they pay royalties whenever their music is played. So it's more like a radio station than a CD. I remember when Steve Jobs launched the iPod. He launched it with the tagline, thousand songs in your pocket. And that started a revolution in the way that people consumed music. It was the beginning of the end for CD sales and other physical delivery of music. Now Spotify has, of course, driven the final nail into that coffin with another revolution. And what you get with Spotify is, in effect, 
all the music in the world for $12 a month. And this is a much bigger change than the iPod. The iPod was shifting music from physical to digital, but Spotify changes the very nature of what it means to own music. See, when you bought a CD or downloaded a song on iTunes, you owned that copy of the music or that track. And you could play it as many times as you like forever without paying anything more than you paid originally for that CD or that track. Spotify is different. A Spotify subscriber owns their music in a different way. If you cancel your subscription, you lose access to everything. But as long as you have a subscription, you have access to all the music in Spotify's library. And this is a much bigger collection than any one person would buy. And this is profound when you think about what it gives you. It's not just that you have access to more material, but you can do so many other things. So obviously you can listen to whatever you want. You can also get free access to recommendations from Spotify. And of course, then you have that music. You own that music. You can share your playlist with friends and they can share it with you. And then everybody has immediate access to all the music that you're sharing. You can even get any music you hear anywhere else with the Shazam app. So you hold up your smartphone to some music. It listens to that music and then adds it to your Spotify library. So here's a point. In the past, people owned things because that was the only convenient way to access them. It just wasn't convenient to share physical assets like houses and cars and books and carports and rooms and LP records and designer clothes and office space and spare money and tools and appliances, your holiday homes and bicycles and so on. So we bought them and that gave us immediate permanent and convenient access to them. If we shared it all, it was only with a tightly restricted group of people. But that's no longer the case. Digital technology has made some things more shareable and made even the physical assets easier to share. So the new attitude is, what's mine is ours. Ownership is expensive and inefficient, so share things instead. Now, ownership and sharing aren't the only two options. There are four. If you think about the size of the asset or the resource that you're sharing and the approach to sharing it, then you get four possibilities. So the first one is own. So you own or lease the entire resource, but it's mostly wasted because so much of its capacity remains unused. So think about the things that you own that most of the time you're not using them. For example, the average car is parked for 23 out of every 24 hours. So that's a waste. What about splitting assets? So some resources could be split up into smaller pieces and then you divvy them up between multiple owners or renters, but they're all owning or renting them exclusively. So these are like shares in a company or disk space in a web post, a units in a property development. The other one is subscription. So you could subscribe. So instead of remaining private, these resources are shared much more widely through subscriptions. So subscribers get access to the shared resource, but at the same time as the other people who are subscribed to it. So this is what Spotify is like, or internet bandwidth, or highways and freeways, because you're all using that resource, but you have to use it at the same time as other people. And then the fourth one is to share, where the resource is shared, but each part is locked by the person who's using it, and then it's released. So these are things like Uber rides or Airbnb accommodation and other services which we typically think of as the sharing economy or the gig economy. Now, none of these are necessarily better than any other, and all four categories might be appropriate in different situations. The problem is most businesses, especially established businesses, have only considered one of these four categories, and which is pretty much the own or the lease category. And that means that you might be ignoring other opportunities, which sometimes are better opportunities. So the way around that is to assess your resource needs through these four lenses and consider whether you change the way that you use resources. 
For example, if you own many resources that are sitting idle most of the time, could you sell them and instead buy shared access to them? Alternatively, could you give other people shared access to them when they're idle? And that could create new revenue opportunities or new partnerships for you. So here are three questions for you to start thinking ahead. So which one of these four models currently underpins most of the resources that you use? Next, if you were starting from scratch, would you access a resource that you've got now using a different option? For example, subscribe rather than own. What resources do you own that you could offer to others on a split, a subscribe or a share basis? So that's the first one, which is about own versus share. Let's look at the second one, which is about outsourcing. In a nutshell, stop working so hard. Find micro experts to do what they do best so you can do what you do best. Again, let me tell you a story. This happened in May 2018 at Google's I.O. conference where the Google CEO demonstrated Google's newest artificial intelligence technology. You might have seen it, Google Duplex. And this could make human-like telephone calls to book restaurants and hairdressing appointments. And to prove that it wasn't just a clever mocked-up demonstration, Google invited some tech journalists to their headquarters to test the technology themselves. One of them was Carissa Bell, who was Mashable's apps reporter in San Francisco, And she tested this out and she reported the transcript of her conversation with the artificial intelligence who was calling to book a table at her fictitious restaurant. So she's playing the part of the restaurant employee who's answering the phone call and it's actually artificial intelligence who's making the phone call to make a booking. So Carissa, um, who's the restaurant employee, says, hello, this is Orange Hummus. And Duplex, which is the artificial intelligence acting as a customer, says, I'm Google's automated booking service calling on behalf of a client. Carissa says, OK. The AI says, do you have an available table for Sunday um, at 7.45 p.m.? Carissa says, at 7.45? says, yes. Carissa says, how many people? The AI says, it's for three people. And then Carissa goes on to say, for three people, do you want a table outside or inside? And the software goes, oh, I'm actually booking on behalf of somebody else, so I'm not sure what their preference is. Uh, Whatever you think will be nicer for dining is fine. And then Carissa says, okay, outside works. And then it goes on, there's a bit more, but even this small segment shows how powerful that technology is to conduct human conversations. Now, this is in very limited circumstances, but it does a pretty good job. And at the time, the software was still very much a demonstration and wasn't released, but it wasn't difficult to imagine how it could be integrated into Google's other services, such as its Google Home personal assistant. So here's a point. The most effective leaders and managers know that they should focus on the work that only they can do and let other people do everything else. And in the past, they did this in two ways, delegating work to team members or using external suppliers. Now, those two options are still valuable, but there's another option as well, outsourcing to freelancers in the gig economy. And in the future, some of those services will even be automated by software. But let's look at outsourcing first. Now, on the surface, outsourcing looks similar to engaging external suppliers, but it's different, profoundly different, because you're doing each task on a much smaller scale. So instead of engaging a few suppliers for large tasks, you find micro-experts with specific skills for small, 
clearly defined tasks. Now, you might later go on to create lasting relationships with the best freelancers you find, but this isn't essential. Even if you do work with those same freelancers in the future, there's an understanding from both parties that there's no ongoing obligation to keep working together or even to be available. So you might give a job to a freelancer and go back to them next time and they're busy doing other work. And that's just part of the way that freelancing works. Now, by the way, this definition of outsourcing makes it very different from offshoring. And offshoring is where you push some of your work to other parts of the world, usually because of lower costs or to cover different time zones. And with offshoring, you do have those stronger relationships with a specific group of people. They are really or should be treated as part of your team. And whether they're your team members or your suppliers, you have strong relationships with them. With outsourcing, you have loose relationships with many different people. Now, it sounds pretty easy to outsource work, but it's not easy to do it successfully. And the big difference is that you, as a leader or a manager, must change your focus from inputs to outputs. So when you insource, when you do work internally or delegated, you're looking at processes and you're looking at people's activity and you look at the time that they spend, especially if they're sitting in the office next to you. When you outsource, instead of looking at processes, you're looking at the outcome. Instead of measuring the activity, you measure the results. And instead of measuring how much time they take, you look at whether or not they achieve the goal. This is a huge difference. When people work together in an office, they all see each other's inputs. When they arrive, especially if somebody arrives late, when they leave, especially if somebody leaves early, what they do at work and whether they're busy. And and as a leader, you might not think that you're measuring people this way, but you might be subconsciously influenced by these inputs, even if you claim to only measure their results. And it's totally different when you outsource work to a freelancer. Can you imagine a freelancer on the other side of the world? You can no longer see their inputs, so you must rely on their outputs. And when you outsource effectively, you let other people perform at their best and you free up your own time and your team's time to help you perform at your best. Now, when you think about it, focusing on output is better for productivity and performance, but old habits die hard. It's not easy to do, especially if you have spent your whole leadership and management life focusing on inputs, even subconsciously. So if this is new to you, take baby steps. So when you first start outsourcing work, start with small, well-defined parcels of work that aren't on a project's critical path. You don't want to start by outsourcing your most important, most critical piece of work to somebody on the other side of the world, if you're new to outsourcing. So Start with a small task, set intermediate milestones so you can check the progress along the way and allow extra time for managing the process because one of the challenges with outsourcing is that it takes more of your time to manage the freelancer. So this is a good way to get started. You have to invest a bit more time in it, the first few times at least, knowing that you're going to reap the benefits later. The other thing is that even though you're not obliged to have long-term relationships with freelancers, it's in your interest to treat them as valuable members of your team. They're not just resources to do your trivial low-paid work. Think about them as team members because they bring a whole bunch of other advantages as well apart from the micro-work. In particular, they bring diversity to your team because of their location, maybe their culture, their ways of thinking, and the fact that they're exposed to a whole bunch of other clients and a whole bunch of other work. That'll be different from the work that you give them, but could be related. So here are three questions for you to be thinking ahead. What tasks are you doing internally that you could outsource to a freelancer? What non-critical tasks could you consider outsourcing just to test the waters and get used to this idea? And then how can you encourage your team members to outsource some of their work 
without them feeling threatened by it. So that's outsourcing. Let's move on now to crowdsourcing. So in a nutshell, ask the crowd. So reach out far and wide to tap into the collective and diverse expertise of the world. Let me tell you a story about a successful crowdsourcing initiative. So at the turn of the century, in 2000, Rob McEwen, who is the CEO of a Vancouver-based gold production company, Gold Corp Inc., had a problem. His company's Red Lake Mine in Ontario, Canada, was operational but wasn't performing very well. It was performing well below expectations with a low yield and a high cost of extraction. And now McEwen knew that there were deeper deposits of gold in the mine, but his company's geologists didn't know where they were. He wanted fresh ideas, so he did something that was completely unprecedented at the time. He took all the company's geological data and published it, uploaded it free on the company website and made it available to the world. And it was made available as a bit of a competition. So he called it the Gold Corp Challenge. He offered half a million dollars as a prize to anybody who could help him find gold. This was a pretty risky venture because he was giving away the company's proprietary data. He was also openly admitting the vulnerability of the position and maybe even making Gold Corp the target of a takeover. But the idea worked. Word spread fast online and submissions started rolling in. And what's more, they came not only from geologists, which is what he expected, but from people in unrelated sectors, students, mathematicians, military officers and consultants. The winning entry came from two Australian companies, Fractal Graphics based in Perth and Taylor Wall & Associates based in Brisbane. And together they developed a three-dimensional map of the Red Lake Mine with powerful computer graphics that allowed McEwen and his geologists to better analyse the mine. In all, that software identified more than 110 sites and half of them were previously unknown to the company. And of these new targets, more than 80% of them yielded significant gold reserves. So McEwen's half a million dollar gamble paid off and the mine generated over $6 billion in additional value. So here's a point. You probably already hire external experts to help you solve some of your problems. But you don't know every expert and you couldn't afford to hire them all anyway, especially now when expertise is so widely distributed. So that's where you can tap into the power of crowdsourcing. So when you ask the crowd, you reach out far and wide to tap into the collective and diverse expertise of the world. So you can think of crowdsourcing as like running a competition where many people enter for the chance to win, but only one person wins a prize. You might think this seems like a pretty random and haphazard way to do business, and it's not for everything that you do. But for your difficult, quirky, or complex problems, especially for those that fall outside your core business, it can be very useful. Now, that said, you can't just announce it to the world and hope the right people will turn up. I remember Bob Hoskins saying in that quirky comedy that the, the favor the watch and the very big fish. He says, the Bible says, cast your bread upon the waters and it shall be returned a thousandfold. But what can you do with a thousand loaves of soggy bread? So you've got to do it right. So you conduct your crowdsourcing project like any other project with a goal, a timeline and dedicated resources. I recommend that you follow a five-step process, which is a little bit of a cycle in there. So let me talk about those five steps which work together to lead people in the right direction while still giving them enough flexibility to apply their own expertise. So the first step is to ask. Ask the right question with enough flexibility for participants to be innovative, but also specific enough to give them the right direction towards your goal. 
Next is to seed it. So instead of sitting back and waiting for responses, seed the conversation by contributing a few ideas yourself. So you're probably going to have a public community or some sort of public forum where people are going to be, before they submit their ideas, they might be asking questions, making comments, engaging conversation among each other. So go into that forum and start a few conversations, ask a few interesting questions yourself. This is a number of things. First of all, of course, it builds momentum because people go there and they don't just see an empty forum. It also gives other participants a template for their own contributions and it invites comments and critiques of your ideas and your comments. So don't take it personally. People can comment and question and critique uh, what you post there. But the main thing is you've seeded the conversation. The next thing Step three is to respond. So comment quickly and publicly and positively, of course, on all the suggestions, especially the first few and the first from newcomers. So you want to demonstrate your openness. You want to encourage more contributions and you want to gently guide people in the right direction. Then you refine. So along the way, as you see these conversations happening, you might uncover interesting insights that lead you to refine the original question. You might expand it, you might narrow it, or you might move it in a new direction. As you do that, what happens is you go back into this cycle, so then you might be seeding more conversations. You'll be responding to those new conversations, and then you might be refining even further. Eventually, you get to the point where you have the last step, which is to reward. So you keep following the seed, response, refine cycle until you're ready to announce a winner then you do that. Now, most leaders don't think of crowdsourcing because it still tends to be associated mainly with entrepreneurial startup companies, but it's a valuable tool for any kind of organization of team if you do it right and you do it to solve the right problem. So here are three questions for you to be thinking ahead. First, what problems are you struggling to solve? Could you crowdsource them and how could you crowdsource them? Next, what internal processes, systems and culture might get in the way of running a crowdsourcing project and incorporating the results? And third, what pilot project could you use to experiment with crowdsourcing on a smaller scale? Now let's look at being a community leader. So in a nutshell, bridge the gap. Connect people you know who should know others as well. Let me tell you about life expectancy. The average life expectancy in Australia is 82 years. Now, that's well above the world average of 72. It's above the US at 79. It's slightly above the UK at 81. And it's about the same as New Zealand, Canada and Italy. But in Italy, in one area on the island of Sardinia, which is a Mediterranean island between Corsica and Tunisia, life expectancy is higher, much, much higher. And in her research, development psychologist Susan Pinker discovered that this part of Sardinia, which is one of the world's four blue zones of longevity, had six times as many centenarians as on the Italian mainland and ten times as many per capita than in North America. And Pinker, like many other researchers in this area, was fascinated by this phenomenon. And she set out to discover for herself why this tiny group of people lived disproportionately longer than others nearby. So she went out, she interviewed members of the small villages in that area, and her interviews strongly suggested that longevity was not due to any of the usual suspects, such as diet or non-smoking or non-drinking or clean air or exercise or positive mental attitude or vaccination or even a genetic disposition for longevity. Now, they might have all contributed, but other communities with similar advantages didn't have that same longevity. Instead, she came to realize that two other factors were more significant and were the two strongest predictors of longevity. They were not just her own findings, but these have been reinforced by other researchers who were also curious about what affects longevity. 
And the first factor was a person's close relationships, that is, the people in their innermost circles, typically family and close friends that they call when they need help and who will gladly celebrate their success with them when they have positive things happening in their life. The second factor was a person's social integration. So there are other social interactions during the day, not only colleagues and acquaintances, but also random strangers who share a smile and nod, even a frown. In other words, other people influence our overall well-being and even how long we're going to live. So here's a point. You have a network and one of your unique attributes is your network, especially the people who know, like and trust you. Now, of course, some of those people, in fact, all of those people are in other people's networks as well. But your network is unique and the people in your network are connected to you for some reason. So you have a common link between any two people in your network. You know something about each of them, but they might not know much about each other. So look for opportunities to bridge the gap. Look at the people in your network and connect people who should know each other as well. Now, of course, you have constraints because you have limited time and there's a huge number of potential connections. So you obviously can't personally introduce everybody to each other. So you're selective in who you connect and how you do it. Now, broadly, you can make connections at six levels. So first three public, like, share and endorse. And the next three private, introduce, facilitate and collaborate. Okay, let's look at them in a bit more detail. So the first three levels are more passive than active, where you add your weight to elevate somebody to the rest of your network. You're not introducing them to one other person, but you're helping raise their profile into the rest of your network. So this is where you like, share, or endorse. So like is you like something that they do. For example, by clicking the like button on a social media post. Share is the next step. We actively share it with the rest of your network. And then the endorse is where you recommend them to your network. You write a testimonial, a recommendation, a review, or some other form of public endorsement. So those are the three public levels. They raise somebody's profile to the rest of your network, which encourages other people to then reach out and make a connection to them. The next two levels are private, deeper, and at an individual level. So introduce is the next one, where you connect two people to each other. For example, just send a simple email connecting them. You explain why you think they should connect and then leave it up to them to take the next step. And the next one is to facilitate. You invest your own time in facilitating a meeting between them and then you attend the meeting and explain how they can help each other. And then you step back and let them work together. So with all of these methods, your goal is simply to add value by making the introduction or liking or sharing or endorsing. You don't have to ask for anything in return, but you're going to get value anyway because you'll become known as a valuable connector and a person of influence. Now remember, I said there were six levels and there is one that we haven't covered yet. And this is collaborate. And this is the most powerful level because you not only introduce people to each other, but you invite them both to collaborate with you on some project where all three or more of you contribute your unique skills. And even if the other two people don't know each other, their mutual trust because of you helps them participate in this collaboration. So here are three questions you can ask yourself about how to bridge the gap. Number one, how can you make the first three levels, like, share and endorse, part of your regular social interaction, particularly your online interaction? Next, who in your network can you introduce to each other? And three, who in your network could you approach with the intent of forming a possible collaboration? 
So let's move on to the last one now. And this is the idea of weak ties. And in a nutshell, weak ties are strong. The people at the edge of your networks can provide better connections than your inner circles. So let's talk about the workplace. For most of the last 100 years, the workplace of choice for knowledge workers has been the office, the physical office. And that made sense because that's where you found your co-workers, you found files, that's where you had the secretarial staff, and everything else that you needed to get work done was in the office. So you had to go there. Now, more recently, as the internet allowed people to work just as effectively away from the office, people started working from home. And more workplaces now support and even encourage this kind of work. There's just one problem. It doesn't support everybody. So for many people, the office was not just a place for work, but a place for social interaction and engagement. And in 2013, a market research firm reported that one in three people felt more isolated working from home. Now, there's still only one in three, so two in three didn't mind that, and some of them really enjoyed working from home. But it's still the case that not everybody likes working from home. But the trend towards these distributed teams continues and it's led to a third idea in the middle, which is co-working spaces. And this aims to give workers the best of both worlds. So co-working space is a shared office for people who want to work independently, but also value the social interaction and collaborative synergy that comes with engaging with others during their working day. And now co-working spaces were initially created for and patronized by independent workers such as freelancers and solopreneurs and remote workers, startup companies who didn't want to invest in office space. But more recently, even the larger companies are jumping on this bandwagon and they're turning their attention to co-working spaces for some of their staff. Even though they could keep them in the office, they're saying, go and work in this co-working space. And many of these organizations have invested millions of dollars in office space. And in the past, they would have fought against employees working anywhere else. But they now realize that co-working space offer some benefits. In particular, they realize it's an, it's an advantage for their employees to interact with people who aren't all like them. They aren't working on the same projects and they aren't collaborating actively every day. Now, you might think these are drawbacks, uh, but they're more than balanced by the opportunity to engage with people who bring new ideas, fresh insights and entire new networks of connections for each other. So here's a point. We tend to engage with the same set of people over and over again, usually the people that we most know, like and trust. The people in our inner circles do provide us with a lot of value and of course vice versa and we've got limited time, energy and physical capacity. So that turns out to usually be the most efficient way to conduct business as usual. But when it comes to making new connections, the people outside your inner circles might be more useful to you. So the problem with your strong ties, the people in your inner circles, is that there's a lot of overlap between your network and theirs. But your weak ties have entirely different networks, which you can't reach through your closer connections. And in these circumstances, despite them being called weak ties, weak ties are strong. These people at the edge of your networks can provide better connections for you than those in your inner circles. And you, in turn, can provide better connections for them. So think of this as like mixing paint colors. So if you want to change blue to green, you've got to add yellow, not another shade of blue. So for example, when I employed a personal assistant in 2017, I didn't find her through my professional connections. She was my partner's sister's colleague's niece. Did you get that right? My partner's sister's colleague's niece. And she didn't have the typical background of a professional PA, which is what I would have got if I just asked through my professional connections. But I loved it because she brought a fresh external perspective that was extremely useful in my business and to my business. 
Now, you might think it's yet another burden to work on nurturing the weak ties in your network. And yeah, it does take work, but perhaps less work than you think. See, by definition, they are not close connections, so you can treat them with a lighter touch. For example, you could engage just a bit more, genuinely and sincerely, with the weak ties that you already know, such as the barista who makes you coffee every day, the stranger that you bump into regularly in the building lift, the other parents at your child's hockey game. You could also invite more people into your extended networks, for example, by accepting more LinkedIn connections, um, and you can be a little bit more liberal about that, knowing that you can remove them anytime if they turn out to be a pest. You could also find ways to engage with many people at once, for example, by hosting a monthly group coffee meeting rather than one-on-one coffee meetings. So here are three questions to get you thinking ahead about weak ties. First, how can you engage more with the weak ties in your network? Try out some of the ideas I said. How can you encourage your team members to nurture their weak ties? And then, what can you do right now to ask one of your weak ties for help with something? So, we've come to the end of this idea about asking the world. So, we talked about these five areas. Own versus share, which is the idea of sharing resources rather than owning them outright. Suppliers versus freelancers, getting freelancers to do micro-tasks for you in narrow areas of expertise. The specialist versus the crowd. So this is about crowdsourcing, running competitions and offering prizes. Partners versus community, where you connect people with each other and increase the value of your community. And then finally, the idea of local versus global, which is the idea of communicating and connecting through your weak ties to extend your network. Disruptive organizations do some of these. Some of them do all of these five things. They don't only look to create a few strong connections and relationships to get things done. They look to create a number of loose relationships. As I said earlier, there's a whole world that's willing to help you. So reach out to them and you can tap into endless talent, skills and expertise. It's one of the best ways that you can become fit for the future. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and found something valuable for your personal and professional life. And if you did get some value from it, I would love it if you could do me a favor and give me a review and a rating in the iTunes store in the podcast area. And that helps to promote it to other people as well. And if you want me to share ideas like this live at your next conference, then check out my speaking topics and workshop topics at gihanspeaks.com. And if you want to engage with me in other ways, go to gihanparera.com where you can find my blog, my newsletter, my podcast, videos, and my free webinars series. They're all free and they're all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team, and of course yourself, that you can become fit for the future. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit gihanperera.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.